Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Returning to the show is my next guest, Dr. Danielle Piomelli, director of the UCI Center for the Study of Cannabis. He'll be moderating an upcoming forum presented by his center and the impact of cannabinoids across the lifespan, ICAL is a shorthand. This forum will be on October 13th. West Coasters, that's 8 a.m. to 12.35 p.m. and Europeans, for you, Mediterraneans, it's just before you're having dinner. It's from 5 to 9.35 p.m. Now, the forum is entitled Cannabis and the Sexual Brain, How Sex Affects Cannabinoid Activity. Dr. Daniel Piomelli is a professor of anatomy and neurobiology, the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences, with joint appointments in the School of Medicine's Chemistry and Pharmacology. He is the, also the director of the UCI Department of Pharmacology National Institute on Drug Abuse. He comes to us today from his office in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Danielle. Hello. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for having me again. Well, the topic it's for this whole forum that we're focusing on today, it's male and female animals, including humans, exhibit different responses to cannabis and its intoxicating constituent THC, the shorthand. This international symposium will present the available evidence for sexual dimorphisms in the pharmacological properties of THC. So Daniel, walk us through the topics to be covered. This is a meeting that really focuses on one, I think quite important topic, which is how sex influences the effects of cannabis and cannabinoid drugs, particularly how sex changes the response of the body to cannabis. So let me just back up for a second, bring all our listeners to where we are now on cannabis. So cannabis has been studied for many, many years, of course, not very well, I have to say, due to a variety of legal hurdles, but has been studied for a while. One thing that we have started to realize quite starkly, really, in the last few years is that if we conducted experiments in male animals, say male rats or male mice, we would have one effect. And if we, for whatever reason, turned to the female of the same species, female rats or female mice, then we would start to see something different. Then if you look at the literature, the human literature, so what human studies are telling us, they are also telling us that women and men don't respond to cannabis in the same way. And when I say that, I know already your next question. What is the difference? And the problem to answer the question is that it depends greatly on what specific effect we are looking into. The other difficulty in answering that kind of question is, of course, do we have the data? And sometimes we just don't have, often we don't have the data. But what I think we all now agree on, there is a very strong consensus in the field, is that sex matters when it comes to the response to cannabis. And that is probably the case because the signaling system in the brain and elsewhere in the body that is involved in the response to cannabis, it's called the endocannabinoid system. That signaling system really differs in a sex-dependent way. So women and men are not exactly identical when it comes to that signaling system. So what we wanted to do with this symposium here at ICAL, at our NIH-funded center, was to focus the attention of researchers who are interested in cannabis on this difference. Because clearly, as researchers plan, design their experiments, 
they must obviously at this point, I think is inevitable for them to bring into the fold, into the picture of their design, the role of sex differences. But Daniel, so, I just want to ask, because I know I'm, it's an increasingly broadened concept, this matter of sex or gender or any of these things. And you bring it as a binary. And I'm sure a lot of people say, but it's much more fluid. There's different ways that sex is expressed. So I don't know if you're just trying to make it binary just so you can get some data to start from. And the idea is to work in that multivariate sort of gender landscape. Yeah, well, before we get to the, uh, to the gender fluidity issue, I think we have to establish how biological sex affects uh, this very basic biological signaling systems. And uh, to our advantage, as basic science investigators, we work with mice and rats, and there is no gender. They have sex. They have biological sex. They don't make any individual decision as to whether they are uh, reproducing as males or females. They are born that way, and they stay that way. Now, it is entirely possible, I'm opening a very hypothetical parenthesis here, that a percentage in the wild, the percentage of the population of, uh, of uh, rats and mice that live in the wild have cases of homosexuality. That has been shown in many other mammalian species and is certainly uh, a real biological fact. But in our experiments, we do not account for that. One has to start somewhere. And clearly, the reproductive aspect of sex, which is male and female, uh, primary sexual organs is with all the chain of, of, of hormonal responses and differences in anatomical structure and biochemical complementation, all those things are the first thing for us to look into. Then, of course, in human studies, and on this I am completely with you in human studies, it will be really important to be more granular in this type of research. And I think that is something that when one designs a human experiment assessing effects, one has clearly to uh, make sure to implement. But luckily for the experiments that we will be talking about in our symposium, uh, rats and mice don't have that kind of problem, at least those that we have, as I said, as experimental models. Well, let's talk about those topics then, starting with abuse is one, and how sex is differently responds to uh, and how abuse of THC. So we will tackle the issue. It's a multi-faceted uh, issue, of course, and the, the speakers will tackle it in their own way, focusing, of course, on their own uh, specific field of interest. So the speakers we have are, are actually really prominent in individuals, prominent scientists, and the symposium will start with a plenary sort of introductory lecture by Professor Larry Cahill, who is here at UC Irvine. He's in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, and he has been working on sexual dimorphisms, as we say in, in jargon. So the differences that occur between one sex and the other, or across the, the spectrum of sex and gender. And that sexual dimorphism, I think, has been very much underestimated in past years. And Larry has been- In every area though, right? It's not just cannabinoids. In in, in every single area, every single area of neuroscience, every single area of research. But you you have to appreciate the fact that science is very complex. So there is always, scientists have the tendency to try and simplify things so to move forward. And sometimes mistakes are made in the effort of being of being simple, of, of the being reductionist, as we say. So in the past, I have to say that these sex differences have been uh, underestimated. 
But this is no longer the case. Actually, now this has come at the forefront. The National Institute of Health, for example, the NIH, makes this a very, very important in their funding strategies. They appreciate that uh, the way men and women, female and males of uh, different species respond, for example, to drugs is different. And this is clearly the case for cannabis. So cannabis' main ingredient, the main intoxicating ingredient is tetrahydrocannabinol or THC for short. The way THC reacts with the male body and the female body is really different. It starts off with the way THC is transformed by the body. So like every other chemical that we ingest, our body, quote unquote, metabolize THC, which means that it transforms it chemically. And the way men and women, female rats, female mice, and female and male mice and male and male rats transform THC is really profoundly different. And what is interesting, and they will, this will be covered by one of our speakers, is that females tend to have, of any species uh, so far investigated, tend to have a much greater metabolism of THC into something else that has got a very funky chemical name, 11-hydroxy-THC. And this compound, 11-hydroxy-THC, is really a powerful intoxicating agent. So it is not surprising, we don't have full proof, but it's not surprising that women and female animals tend to have a greater response to THC. One possible explanation for that is the fact that they transform THC to this intoxicating agent much more effectively than the males of the species do. And this has been, you know, the fact that males and females differ in the way they respond to cannabis has been well documented in the epidemiological literature. And now finally, we're looking at it more in mechanistic ways to try and understand it and also exploit it, hopefully, in the future for maybe for medical reasons. So, Daniel, so what about, you're talking about metabolizing differences. How about the proportion of fat in a body and how much fat plays a role in sort of storing and re-releasing this THC. Yeah, that is a very important point. But I think that the main difference within the men, the, the male body and the female body is not so much in the quantity of fat. There are some differences there, of course, but mostly in where the fat is allocated. So typically in men and women, they weigh about the same amount. Women tend to have more so-called subcutaneous fat or good fat, and men tend to have more of the visceral fat, which is the bad fat. And THC would go in both of them with equal amounts, approximately. Okay. So it's not so much fat, I think, that matters very much, although it's certainly a factor. The other factor that could play a role is whether, and this we don't know for a fact, it'll be interesting to find out, that's why we have this symposium to stimulate research. One fact that could play a role is whether we have men and women, female and males have the same number of the so-called cannabinoid receptors. So cannabinoid yes. receptor is a protein that is present in the brain and also in other organs of the body, actually almost everywhere. And this receptor is very, very important normally and is the receptor that binds THC. So when we inhale THC, when we use THC, the THC arrives on the receptor, it changes its structure and causes cells to respond. And uh, it is entirely possible, there is some evidence to it, that uh, males and females don't have the same numbers of cannabinoid receptors. So maybe females could have more or less. And of course, at that point, they would have more or less of a response. But also it is possible that the receptor is not exactly localized in the same way. And that is something that would also affect 
the response to THC. And really the beauty of this is that we really don't know a lot. So it's an open, an open field of investigation. Again, what we're trying to do with this symposium is not to provide answers, but to really to stimulate thought and experiment in this area. One area that I think is especially interesting is pain. And of course, it's not interesting only because it is uh, of great uh, concern to, uh, to many of us who may be with age. There's demand, yes, it's but now. That is certainly my case. With age, you know, you start having you know, aches and pains and maybe uh, some more than others. But it is a fact, and, and unfortunately, a very inexplicable fact so far that uh, women have a lot more chronic pain than men do. Men live shorter lives, women live longer lives which is a good thing if you're a woman, but on the other hand, you end up having more pain. So that is something that we do not know the explanation for. And so one of our speakers, uh, Dr. Rebecca Kraft, she will be talking about her work on how sex differences affect pain responses in animals and also how they affect the response to painkillers. And that's another important point, right? So how we respond when we get, uh, I don't know, a you know, a capsule of Advil or an aspirin, how well we respond to that, that's something that also sex affects. And uh, she will be talking about that. Another speaker, actually two speakers, both both from Europe, will look at what you were um, referring to before. So you called it abuse. So I prefer to use the term problematic use. So when someone uh, uses a drug, and in this case, uh, it could be cannabis, in a way that uh, creates problems to the person themselves. So that is something that I think uh, is good to use correct terms in this because, you know, sometimes, you know, abuse can be already morally charged, if you wish, whereas problematic use is, I think, a more correct way of saying it. But anyway, so well, I think I may have lifted that from one of the summaries on the website for the announcement. So that uh, I don't think I would have rendered abuse, but but yes. Okay. And, uh, well, actually, there is such a thing as the National Institute on Drug Abuse, so it's certainly not your fault. I, I, this is a, my, my own personal verbal campaign, my campaign for verbal clarity. <laughs> I like it. Problematic use. Yes, problematic use is, has got everything in there. And let's not forget, if you are a user and you're experiencing problems, you are experiencing those problems. So abuse almost seems like, you know, you're abusing someone, right? You know, you're abusing yourself if anyone. Right, right. And it also carries, it picks up the questionable merchant of cannabis that is dispensing all kinds of uninformed advice people are relying on. That's that's also a problematic use. Yeah, no, that is definitely the case. So whether or not there is there are differences in, in the way males and females, again, these are animals, so that's how I refer to them, respond to the ability of cannabis to create habits or to create a problem. That is something that, this, uh, that Dr. Uh, Liana Fattore and Patrizia Porco will be talking about. And then the last speaker, um, the Wagner, Ed Wagner, We'll talk about something that is really interesting and not very well uh, appreciated. A lot of people think that cannabis is primarily an intoxicant, like, you know, alcohol or, say, cocaine or, you know, say, morphine or heroin. But in, in a way, yeah, that's the main effect that people are familiar with. But there are cannabinoid receptors all over the body. And there are cannabinoid receptors in places that have got nothing to do with the way we feel about the world, but have got a lot to do about the way our body accumulates and uses energy. 
So we accumulate energy with feeding, of course, but also with a series of processes that make us store the energy into the various storage sites of, your, of our body, including fat. And surprisingly, what researchers have discovered in the last 20 years is that the endocannabinoid system, so the system that uh, activates normally the cannabinoid receptors, is a key regulator of all these uh, uh, metabolic uh, functions, such that really the ability, our ability to store fat and to mobilize it as we need is really dependent on the endocannabinoid system and on cannabinoid receptors. And Dr. Wagner will be looking at how sex and, uh, and metabolism interact. So how endocannabinoids and cannabinoids affect metabolism in different ways in males and females. I think this, is, this goes back to your original question about fat, and I think it's a very interesting topic. So the, the, the meeting will be ended by one additional speaker who is from uh, UCI again. She's a member of our center and the director, the chair of the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology. Her name is uh, Professor Christine Gall. And Chris uh, will be presenting some really exciting data about the uh, sex differences in the way cannabis affects memory. So in particular, she will look at uh, one set of neural circuits in little portion of the brain called the hippocampus. And in the, the hippocampus is important, very, very important in consolidating memories. So in making a transient impression become a permanent impression, right? So the hippocampus does so through a series of neural circuits that uh, have been extensively studied for many, many years. And uh, along with Professor Gary Lynch are looking at how exposure to THC in adolescence changes the ability of our brain, of the animal's brain, to store memories and to correctly process neural information within the hippocampus. They're finding very substantial effects. And what is important is that these are not immediate effects. So it's not the effect while the animal is exposed to cannabis, THC. That's not what is happening here. It is animals have been exposed to cannabis during adolescence. These animals when they grow up and they become adult, they now have these problems with their ability to incorporate memories. And what she and Dr. Lynch have been finding is that it's a completely different. If you look at male animals and female animals, the responses are dramatically different. Again, goes to the point, if this can be translated into humans, which I think there is a good chance it will be translated, goes to the point, men and women are unlikely to respond identically to the very same amount of cannabis that they use. So this is like not quite breaking news, but breaking news enough that the early consumption of THC is setting up one for a limited capacity of memory as they age out, as they age. Well, that's a very good way of putting it. You know, this is really what the entire center, NIH-funded center here at UCI, is about. It's a center of excellence and, is and has been created around the idea to study in a very systematic and very vertically integrated manner how early exposure to THC changes the body. And we start with the brain because that's where a lot of the activity is and also where our expertise is. But we have been actually including also work in other areas, including metabolism, by the way, including to energy balance. 
what we are finding, and some of this work has been published and other will soon be published, uh, what we're finding is really striking. There are very substantial changes that are either long-lasting or even permanent in animals. And we suspect that similar changes also will occur in people. So when we say we suspect, all we mean to say is that we hope that these discoveries will make clinical scientists, people who work with humans, aware of the possibility of such deficits occurring after exposure to cannabis in early life, and will focus their attention to these potential deficits to demonstrate or not whether they're also present in people. So I can just see now that this would be added to a pediatrician's protocol where the physician looks at the parent at the doctor's visit and says, you know, goes down the list of car seat, helmets, and then, you know, cannabis use. Like, we, we, like trying to sort of provide an, a health advisory that this is a, this is going to trim your brain function for the, for your lifetime. I mean, that, that might be a kind of protocol, no? I think that, yes, I think that we need to be careful how we frame this type of conversations because too, for too long, we have used this sort of scare it's, tactics. It's been hysterical. Exactly. It's a right. fine line to get that message out, but it's so, so I, crucial. I, yeah. I, I agree. But I think what matters is that, first of all, I believe that teenagers are smart. Sometimes their decision making can be problematic. That's part of the of the age and the level of development, but they are smart. And when they're presented with evidence that makes sense with data corroborating it, and they're not instead presented with some, just some, you know, like an, an egg on a, on a frying pan and this is your brain, <laughs> brain and marijuana. Well, obviously, you know, obviously that's, that's counterproductive, right? Because they know that their body, uh, you know, uses and is perfectly fine. So how, on earth can they reconcile that scare tactic with their own experience? So they tend to dismiss the scare tactic and that is counterproductive in my opinion. What I think is the productive thing to do is to say, look, we really wanna take a close look at what is happening and we wanna understand what is happening and we wanna confine and limit the risk. So it's very, very important. So this is a risk reduction strategy that is grounded and founded on knowledge, understanding how cannabis interacts with the body. If you have the type of risk reduction approach, I think you have a much greater possibility of getting into uh, sort of the behavior of teenagers and any other group of people. Look, you know, there are few groups of people in our populations who are vulnerable to the effects of cannabis. And one is teenagers. Another one is uh, women who use, especially when they are expecting. So that is another area that uh, needs to be taken into consideration. But if we put on a blanket statement, cannabis is going to fry your brain, which is clearly wrong. It's clearly untrue. People will dismiss it and everyone will use it. And at the end of the day, there will be a lot more damage than, than benefit. Well, maybe instead of frying, you know, finer points of it's going, it may be pruning part of your tree, folks, so be careful. But this, that is a, a good seg for one of the researchers, Ulrika Luder, is going to talk about the disruption of reproductive function. I think that was one remaining topic that you hadn't mentioned. Yes, absolutely. And Dr. Luder, he's not, she's not a member of the center, but one thing that the center has been allowed to do, thanks to the support of the National Institutes of Health, is to give grants, small grants, 
to other researchers. And we have allocated a few, uh, quite a few actually here at UCI to study specific projects that were initiated by the investigators themselves. And Dr. Luderer is one of them. She approached us uh, with an interesting scientific question as to whether exposure to THC during adolescence disrupts the, the animals, this is work in mice in particular, the animals' reproductive physiology. And I don't want to steal her, 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 her thunder, so I'm not going to say anything about her results. I'm going to invite people. Okay, she has some results, though. That's, oh, yeah, that's what's does. going to make this super compelling. Well, fact, I... I'll tell you, the results are so striking that we are all very, very, very excited that she will be presenting them. Let, let me just say one more thing in this. One of the issues in this literature is that people, in order to get papers published, some investigators in the past, and this is happening less and less, but some investigators in the past, you know, gave animals large amounts of THC, so large that they were not necessarily, or not at all, relevant to the human condition, right? But this is not what we and many others now do. We actually have developed a protocol of giving just the right amount of THC to produce a small, a very, very small response in these adolescent mice. Very, very small. We can quantify all these different responses. We know how much a drug is in the body of the animal. That's the advantage of animal research, right? And we, with that knowledge, we can tell exactly, look, these guys are given a very small dose, all right? So the results that we are getting and the results that Dr. Luther had got which are so interesting. One important reason why they are so interesting is because they were not obtained with some kind of crazy wacky dose of THC that means nothing. They were taken, they were obtained with a very low dose that is actually quite realistic. Frequent use, but frequent use of, of very, very low doses is something that I think is much more realistic than you know injection of a large amount of THC multiple times a day as some investigators do. For those of you who just joined me, my guest is Dr. Danielle Piomelli, Distinguished Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology and the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences at UCI and Director of UCI's Center for the Study of Cannabis and the Editor-in-Chief of Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. And along with the center, along with the impact of cannabinoids across the lifespan, that's ICAL, is presenting a four-hour virtual forum on October 13th on the West Coast. It's from 8 a.m. to just afternoon, and in Europe, 5 to 9.35 p.m. So Danielle Piomelli is going to be moderating this forum entitled Cannabis and the Sexual Brain, How Sex Affects Cannabinoid Activity. So Who's your audience targeting? Because you're talking about some amazing kind of results and you're trying to stimulate more research. But I'm guessing, Daniel, you're trying to capture all kinds of takers here. Well, that's a wonderful question. And to which I have to say the answer is we really don't know. It is, we know for sure that uh, scientists uh, who are active in the cannabinoid field have responded and they will likely attend. We know that because we have targeted an audience of professional investigators. However, with a beautiful thing about Zoom is that uh, you really don't know. You can easily connect and you don't have to travel all the way to Southern California or whatnot. So you can easily connect. And you can connect also if you are, say, a lay person who is just interested in the topic. And because we have made this uh, public enough, we expect to have folks who are just lay people and are interested in the area of sex and the brain or in the area of cannabis and the brain or both. 
So the message that I gave to my speakers, to our speakers, is try to be, of course, you have to be you're telling people about scientific data, so it has to be scientific and detailed, but try and be as clear as possible because the audience may be a little bit mixed. It was funny, but this is the second symposium the ICAL has, our center has. And the, the first one was you know, last year and was uh, dedicated to uh, age and uh, cannabinoids. So how the response to cannabinoids changed with age. And I remember the first speaker from Sweden gave a wonderful lecture, but very detailed. The one, no, the first question was, do I need a PhD to listen to this symposium? No, you don't need a PhD, but sometimes you have to excuse scientists. We're not trained to talk to large audiences. We are trained to talk to each other. So please make an effort, be patient with us. We are just trying to do the right thing. And you can always ask questions, okay? You can always, if, you, if there are things you don't understand, there will be a system in place where people can ask written questions, and the scientists will be delighted to answer them. Well, I'm going to vouch for how Dr. Piamelli knows how to reach a crowd. The sweet spot he found with the forum I recently attended with the Women Four of Orange County, where he was able to meet us and then edify us. And that sweet spot is a rare one. So if your speakers know how to adjust their talks to that kind of accessibility, then you're gonna make incredible headway. So how is it going to work then, Danielle, with how presenters interact with each other and how audience attendees can interact with the presenters? You know, there, is, there are some advantages in Zoom, the Zoom platform, as I just said, you know, you last time we had an audience from the, the country of Zambia and the, the Far East Asia, uh, all over Europe and South America. And, but unfortunately, the interactions are all mediated through the medium, right? So we reach out to a farther audience and that's wonderful, but uh, the only interaction we can have is really asking questions in writing, which is limited, but is what the medium allows us to do. So there is that, that is a weak part, but my hope is that our next symposium, we are renewing the center grant at the end of this year, and our next symposium, which if we get renewed, will be in 2022 or 2023, will be finally in person. And maybe at that point, we will also have a Zoom platform so we get the best of both worlds. Well, the last question, the institutional kind of interplay here between the impact of cannabinoids across lifespan, the ICAL that's sponsoring, it's the National Institute of Health, if I understand correctly, the Center for Excellence, and its relationship to your center, Danielle. And the Center for the Study of Cannabis is a campus center. So it's a center that is actually headed by Professor Robert Solomon in the School of Law and myself in the School of Medicine. We work together. We have all sorts of different activities. I won't go into them because it will take too long, but it's a, it's a campus center. So we foster academic research in the field of cannabis throughout UCI. And we are part of a network through the UC system of centers that meet regularly to share their information and program things that could be done together. So the Center of Excellence that funded from the NIH, ICAL, is different in that that is essentially a very large grant that was given to UCI. And I am the principal investigator in this grant, along with Professor Marcelo Wood in the School of Biological Sciences. And we bring together investigators Steve Mahler from Biological Scientists, Gary Lynch and Chris Gold from Anatomy and Neurobiology and the School of Medicine. And we bring them together 
to study specifically how THC in adolescence affects you know, brain behavior and physiology later on in life. So if you wish, the Center of Excellence is essentially a grant. And we have other grants. They're just smaller than the Center of Excellence grant, which is a very large support fund for us. And as I said, it will be ending uh, in a year. So we are working on its renewal right now. So I guess, how many centers are there like you in the U.S.? Oh, I can't answer that question, but I do know that we are the only center of excellence at UCI. The Center for the Study of Cannabis. How many oh, comparable oh, oh, centers are there like that? I, I, I should ask that. I've never asked you that before. Well, you know, we, I never done really an inventory of that, a census of that. I can tell you that when we got started in 2017, we were two. There was the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at UCSD and us, and we were the only one actually in the world to have together the, uh, the School of Medicine and the School of Law. Now, of course, as things you know move, uh, others joined. So basically every uh, single campus in the University of California system has one such center. We have one at UCLA, uh, UC Berkeley, et cetera, UC Davis. However, outside of the UC system, I know that there, is, uh, there are a few. There is one in Colorado, for example, that is quite important. There is one at the University of Washington, UW in Seattle. But a full census, I don't actually, I cannot answer to you. Okay, just want to know how special you are. Well, thank you for all your time again on the show, Danielle. Thanks for coming to Ask a Leader today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Claudia. It's always lovely to be with you. Thank you. My guest was Danielle Piomelli, Distinguished Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology, and Louise Turner-Arnold, Chair in Neurosciences at UCI and Director of UCI's Center for the Study of Cannabis and the Editor-in-Chief of Cannabis and the Cannabinoid Research, the talk that his center, along with the iCal we've talked about, is entitled Cannabis and the Sexual Brain, How Sex Affects Cannabinoid Activity, October 13th in the morning on the West Coast and the evening in Europe.